Today's November 6th, right? So can we get started with this series? You guys, there's like two people that are cool with that. Are, can we get started with this series? It's going to be good. Going through the book of Daniel, Thrive in the Fire. You've probably noticed, but our nation is becoming less and less Christian. Right? We feel it. If you're more than two decades old, you really feel it. For those of you who are around in the 50s, you really feel it. Because back in the 1950s, 50% or more of Americans would be in church on every single Sunday morning. And today, the, the highest number I saw was an estimate that maybe 28% in all places of religion on a Sunday or on Saturday. 28%. But some of the statistics are even bleaker. Barna did a big study because they wanted to say, hey, well, well if 65%, because this is interesting, 65% of people today in America still claim, adults claim to be Christian. 65%, even though that number has dropped and dropped and dropped over the last couple decades. 65%, and you're like, oh, wow, we're majority Christian, right? But then when you actually dig a little bit deeper, Barna found that they just wanted to look for four different things. And these are the four that they looked for. They looked for people who attend a church once a month or more, just once a month. They look for people who say that they trust the Bible as an authority for their lives, too. Three, they wanted people that say that Jesus is their Savior who died and rose from the dead. And four, they wanted people who say that my faith causes me to go out and change and transform the world. So those four things they were just looking for. And they found that there was only 10% of Americans who would fit the bill for those four things. So when we're asking how many people are Christian in America, I would say, well, those are pretty clear signs of who is a genuine biblical Christian. 10%. And what that means is even though it seems like Christians are the majority, we are not. For biblical Christians, we are a minority. 538.com, which is a secular news source that does a lot of statistics, they wanted to ask this question, are Christians now minority? And they had an article that came out this last week with different people sharing their opinions, but it started with an interview with a woman named Crystal Vasquez, and Crystal had recently become a Christian in the last few years. And she said that because of that, it like changed the way she talked, and at work, when something good would happen, she'd say, praise God. And people started scolding her. Don't say that here. And then she had a really good friend that she'd known for years, and this friend all of a sudden said, we're not going to see each other anymore because this friend had a transgender child and didn't want their child hanging out with a Christian. And she said, Crystal did, she said, I feel not only that I'm the minority, but I am discriminated against as a Christian. Some of you have felt that and experienced that. But it's really tough for sociologists, so they have actually invented a term now for what Christians are in our culture today, and they call us a cognitive minority. And here's why, because it's actually hard for a lot of demographic reasons. We don't all share the same skin color. <laughs> we don't all have the same nation of origin or ethnicity. We're not all from the same region of the country. There's all sorts of overlaps within Christians, but it's what we think and what we believe that's different. So it's a cognitive minority. We're a cognitive minority here in our country. Walter Brueggemann, a great theologian, back in 1986, first wrote about this as numbers were declining and declining. And they were since the 1950s, but the last 20 years and the last three years in particular, there's been even higher declines in people who are claiming to be Christian and go to church and all that stuff. But Walter Brueggemann said that our time now, we are becoming exiles in our own country. Exiles. There's this idea that's actually a, a biblical metaphor that we're going to talk about today and throughout this series, that we are living in a country that we feel like isn't our own anymore. 
like the exiles in the Bible. That even if you were born here and lived here, you're like, this is not the country I thought it was. This is not the country maybe I want to live in. I want things to be different. And yet, it's not. It's not what I grew up in. We are that cognitive minority. We are an exile. Um, Lee Beach, a Canadian theologian, described being an exile like this. He says, exile is the experience of knowing that one is an alien. And perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. In his book, The Church in Exile. And it's true. Over the last two decades, there has been a radical, quick shift in what our society believes that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That uh, about sexuality and about gender, it's changed so rapidly that it's caused a lot of people to be shell-shocked. Feeling like for the first time that they are a minority. And it's hard for people, it leaves people feeling alienated, marginalized, and pressured to assimilate. There's a lot of pressure right now. People think, well, why can't Christians just change? Can't we just have a different Christianity? But what we're going to learn today is that we don't need a different Christianity. We need Christians to be different. And we've got to realize we've got to be different. And we're going to have to stand out, and we're going to feel pressure to conform But we have to step forward and be different if we want to make a difference. This is a change in mindset for a lot of us. Even me, like in 1993, since 1993 to today, a third of the Christians are going to church on a Sunday morning. That's a rapid change. It's a rapid change. And we have to prepare for it because there is the pressure to be different. But our big idea today, guys, get this, be different to make a difference. Can you turn to the person next to you and tell them that? Now tell the person on the other side. Be different to make a difference. This is what we're going to learn today from Daniel. And um, in this series that we're going to be, be looking at is that, yes, we are in our nation, but it feels like it's not our nation anymore as Christians, that we are in um, exile, right? And even in Babylon. Babylon is something used throughout the Bible. We're literally going to talk about Babylon today, but it becomes a metaphor throughout the Bible for living in a nation that isn't our own. In fact, Peter, when he writes his letter, he he calls Christians, those living in exile, and at the end of his letter, he even says, um, greetings from Babylon. And Babylon didn't exist in Peter's day. But it's this metaphor you see throughout the Bible for those Christians who live in a foreign nation. And that's what it feels like now as Christians. So we've got to learn how to adapt because that feeling of living in Babylon feels like pressure, feels like heat, like we're in a flame, right, in the fire. And therefore, that's why I'm calling this series Thrive in the Fire. Because God is going to teach us through this book, through this series, not just to survive, but to thrive in the fire. To thrive in the fire, just like Daniel and his friends did. So this series is going to be a six-week series. We're starting today. We're covering the first six chapters of Daniel. And I want you to commit to this series. If you are a regular part of church uh, here, definitely commit to this series. You need all six of these weeks. It's going to build on each other to learn how to thrive in the fire. If you are new to our church, even if this is your first time, commit to these six weeks. How are you going to know if we're a good church or not unless you come for six weeks, okay? Check out this whole series. If you're online, the same thing. If you know you're going to be traveling like for Thanksgiving or something, subscribe on your podcast app or on YouTube, and you can make sure you get every message and stay up to date on this six-week series. And if you're wondering, well, doesn't that push us up to Christmas? Yes, we're not doing a Christmas series this year. Sorry. You guys okay with that? It doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyways, okay? 
We will have a special Christmas message on Christmas Eve, but we're doing Daniel up until then. We're doing Daniel up until then. And today we're going to learn, if you want to make a difference, be different. Be different to make a difference. So let's start in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible, pull it out. If you have a smartphone, you can use the YouVersion Bible app. And if you go to the bottom right-hand corner, you can more search for event, find Arise Church Denver, and you can see the scripture and notes we're using today and save them right there on your phone. So yes, you can get out your phone right now, as long as you're looking at the Bible. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to read starting at the beginning there. We read, In the third year of the reign of of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So here we are starting out with God's people who were living in Jerusalem in the nation of Judah that God had set apart to be special and holy from him. And these are are taken as the Babylonians come in and conquer this empire starting to rise up and they take all the people. We have this map here. And they take them from Jerusalem and they take all those people as exiles to Babylon. I have on this map, the orange is probably the size of the Babylonian Empire as it grew all the way. And as it grew over to Jerusalem, that's when they take those people, including the king. um, And and they take all the nobles, all the officials, anybody of wealth or power they take out of the city. And they bring over to Babylon to live as exiles there. And you can see here, of course, modern-day Israel is where Jerusalem is, even to to this day. Babylon was in ancient um, Babylon, but today that's where the nation of Iraq is. I also put Iran on here because later in the book of Daniel, that nation is going to be play a role as well. So you can kind of just see what's happening in the Middle East. But this Babylonian empire was huge. It was powerful. It was taking over everything. And they were so big that when they defeated any of these nations, they would take their gods and say, my God's better than your God, and take their utensils, like they, the, the cups from the temple. They didn't have idols, in, of course, in God's temple because... God said, don't make any images of me, right? But they took all this stuff and they said, my God is better than your God, so I'm going to put your stuff in our temple. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And you can see on this next slide, as he takes um, the people from Jerusalem, they would have taken that route. And um, some of the other people in, in the Bible, it talks about their trip there, that perhaps it took 52 days, or for Jeremiah, it was like months of travel on foot as a slave, being forced to march, for 900 miles across the desert. So this is what happens to God's people. So we're going to be introduced to Daniel and three of his friends. They are forced to do that, to walk and to walk and become slaves now in this foreign nation that worshiped different gods, that spoke different languages, had a different culture. Can you imagine the shell shock they faced? Talk about marginalization. And this is what happens to them in a nation that is totally different from them as they are now living in Babylon. They're living in Babylon. But what I wanted you to notice in verse 2, I had this highlighted. It says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That word delivered occurs three times in this passage, talking about God. And it's the Hebrew word natan. Can you guys say natan? Pretty simple word, right? It means God gives. And here we see at the very beginning, God gave his people into exile. He gave his people to Babylon. He gave his people into the fire. This is very clear in this passage and throughout the scriptures that God is sovereignly in control of everything that happens, even the bad things that happen in our lives. 
whether it's for us personally or whether it's for us as a nation, because some people look at it and they're like, oh my gosh, how could so many people stop going to church? How could our country go, go this way? It seems like it's just going to pot. And they're like, how could God allow it? God allows it. And he's in control through it. He's in control through it. And, th- and this is important for us to remember at the beginning that God actually puts us into Babylon. He puts us into the fire. For God's people at the time, they were very disobedient. He had been generous and patient with them for hundreds of years And yet they continue to get worse and worse, to worship other gods, worship false gods, sin, create injustice against the poor and the needy. And all of these things that were happening, God sent prophet after prophet, please repent, turn back to God. And they didn't. And the kings especially got worse and worse and worse. And because that, God finally was like, it's time to put you into punishment as discipline. So hopefully you will return to me and worship me. So God now gives his people, after a very long time, God is faithful. Like, this took over 400 years. Okay, finally, God is handing them over. But he does hand them over, and he's in control of that. And I say that some people do not like this view of God. They're like, I thought God is happy, loving, and kind. He doesn't cause bad things, right? But let me tell you this. God deliberately allows some things to happen to us that are hard because he loves us. That's hard to hear. But the alternative is far worse That it's all out of control and God's like trying to play catch up. Like, oh, maybe I can help you. Oh, these Babylonians, where do they come from? God's not doing that. Or worse, the other view, that is Satan in control? No. God is in control of all things. And when bad things happen and they suck, God is still in control. And maybe it is for our good, for our discipline. Maybe we are to learn something. Because it's when we are in the fire that we actually become refined. And maybe, for God's people, God is forcing them to be different from the world around them because now they are forced to live in Babylon. And Babylon was hard. If we think it's bad in America right now for Christians, Babylon was bad for God's people. Look at this in verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. I highlighted the word officials because in the Hebrew, it literally is the word eunuch. This is the chief of the eunuchs. And the king says, hey, chief of the eunuchs, get me some more eunuchs. Do you guys know what a eunuch is? It's a male that has been castrated. Kings would do this because, and this is very common in the ancient world, because it was like a way to show dominance. But it was also like, hey, now you, can't, you won't touch my harem or my wives. They'd serve the king and they wouldn't have to worry about it. Kings would do this, and they would do this to dominate these subjugated people and say, look how much power I have over you. Now, based on what we see in this chapter and what was going on in the Middle East of the day, that people who would be trained, as Daniel and his friends were, to be these kind of people, eunuchs, they would probably start around the age of 14. So here, Daniel, we're going to be introduced, Daniel and his three friends are probably teenagers at this point. They are entering high school, and they are castrated, made to be eunuchs against their will. And this is what Babylon does. They mess with our gender and our sexuality. I'm serious. This is what Babylon has always done. Whatever the Babylonian empire is, like, let's get them where it counts. Let's change the things that are maybe core to who they are. Could you imagine Daniel and his friends, they had probably imagined getting married, having intimacy with a woman, and now that's all taken away from them for their whole lives. 
Now, it's only implied in this passage, but I think it really did happen because it was actually prophesied 150 years before this by Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet said, And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now that's happening. Something so precious to them is taken from them. Their gender, their sexuality is destroyed. And that's what our society is trying to do right now. They're trying to change our viewpoint on gender and sexuality. Happened in the Roman Empire too. It happened in our republic now today. It happens. What is being taught now in public schools, seen in Hollywood and in the media, is that a Christian view, a biblical view of gender and sexuality is wrong and even bad for people. We are called homophobic and transphobic. We're holding what God has said for millennia. And yes, it's being forced on our young people. I don't know if you guys saw this story, but it was just, there were some emails leaked this week. I saw it in, in my newsfeed that a school system here in the state of Colorado had an elementary kid that came in and talked to the teacher, had some questions, some confusion, and wanted to be called by a different pronouns and a different name than they were given by their parents and by God. The teacher talked to the parents, and the parents were like, no, no, no. We, you know, we named our kid. This is what God made our kid. Called him by these pronouns and this name. So the teacher emailed the administration. These are the emails that got leaked. And the administration came back and said, we'll lie to the parents. Use the pronoun with them that they want and the name with them that they want, but then with the kid, use the different one. This is what's happening in public schools here in Colorado. And I had a lot of people after the first service tell me personal stories about third and fourth graders and below about this stuff happening. That what we're being taught is wrong as Christians. See, Babylon is in control, and they mess with gender and sexuality. And some of you are even mad at me right now because you've already been messed with to think I'm in the wrong. And we need to be aware of what is going on in Babylon today. We're in the fire. We're facing the pressure to conform to what everybody else thinks. And it's not even so much that you can be like, let's just agree to disagree. Like, that's a whole other thing. Like, let's have libertarian freedom in our country. You can do what you want. Like, that, that's not even okay anymore. Like, if you disagree with what the empire says, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong. And I'm, now I'm going to get some emails after this message. Made some enemies today. But you've got to be different to make a difference. And at these root things of gender and sexuality, it's so important that we do that too. Because our society is really trying to re-educate people. This is what Babylon did. And they start with the teenagers. They're like adults. They're already too far gone. We can't train them anymore. But let's take the teenagers, the kids, and re-educate them to think differently. And that's exactly what Babylon did. Look at this in verse 4. The king had said, bring in these eunuchs, young men without any physical defect, handsome. So they've got to look good if they want to be by the king showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So he wanted the best of the best to serve him as his officials, his wise men, and, and, and for different... Um, Stuff that we'll see throughout the rest of this book. 
And um, what's interesting is we don't know this, but like teaching them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, the way this would have been done in the uh, Middle East in these days is they would have had um, these guys coming in who spoke a different language, knew a different language, Hebrew. They would have come in and they had to write down, copy verbatim religious literature from the Babylonians. The scriptures of the Babylonians, that you'd write it word for word until you memorize the new language because they were also like, this is religious education too. We're going to have you stop believing in your God or your gods, and you're going to believe in our gods. And this is how they would do it at a very young age. Let's get the teenagers while we can. And I'm telling you this because no matter, like, I had somebody talking with me about public school after the, the first service. It's not about public school or private school or homeschool or anything. Wherever your kids are in our country today, there are people that are trying to educate them to believe something different than what the Bible says. It's not just teachers. It's not just professors. I had those. I went to public school. I went to Colorado State. Like, I went to the secular school. I was taught things contrary to the Bible, and that was a couple decades ago. I'm getting old now, right? Now it's even more so. That what is being taught today, and it's not just in schools. It's also by the media. It's also by Hollywood. It's everywhere. Is something that runs contrary to the Bible. Things like there are other ways to God, not just Jesus. That sexuality, gender, we could go on and on, right? And all the different ways that they're saying that Christianity is wrong, this is the way. And I'm telling you this because parents, especially, you have to teach your kids. And I'm not saying homeschool. Maybe you do. But what I am saying is it's your job, your responsibility to bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. You cannot trust anyone else to raise your kids. You can't. It's our responsibility. We're commanded as Christians to do it. And whether your kid is in public school or somewhere else, that's beside the point. The point is you have the responsibility to teach them, to train them. Because they will be taught things contrary to the scriptures. Even yesterday, McKinley, she's about to turn six, and I sat down with her, and I pulled out my ballot. I had done some research ahead of time, but I showed her where I do some research on these things. I went through every single ballot initiative with her. A five-year-old, right? I talked through each thing, and I told her why I vote one way. And not just logically, because some of them are logically, but also how my faith impacts how I vote at certain points. Because, yes, your faith should impact the way you vote. Guess what? I'm not going to tell you how to vote here. That's not what I do. I'm going to teach you your faith, right? (laughs) But I told her, this is why. I I know that when she grows up, she won't agree with everything I say. That's okay. But I want her to start thinking now about these things. I want to lay a foundation so she knows why we believe what we believe and what it does to impact our lives. Starting at five. And we've all got to do the same thing. You cannot trust somebody else to raise your kid. And some of you uh, mistakenly think, well, I don't want to force my religion on them. I don't want to force them to believe something. I want them to decide for themselves. Of course we want them to decide for themselves. A parent's religion is worthless. Can I say that? When you stand before the judgment seat. It's about your faith. And have you declared Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So don't force your faith on them. But let me tell you, there are people all around them trying to force their faith on your kids. Religion and non-religion. And if you don't give them a foundation, how the heck are they going to stand up and make a decision for themselves? Let them at least walk away from the faith later, if that's what they choose. And we still love them and hope they come back and seek the one, right? But we've got to teach them. We've got to train them. We are commanded to do it. And I'm telling you guys, the world is trying to conform them, push them to be like the world, like Babylon. But we've got to be different. The world is really tough. Look what happened um, to these guys in verse 6. It says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names 
to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They are changing their names, giving them a new identity. Because isn't that what names do? If we call you a name long enough, you're going to believe that's who you are. They're giving them new names. And I want to show you what these names originally meant in Hebrew and what they now mean for the Babylonians. Daniel. In Hebrew, it means God is my judge, which gets changed to Belteshazzar. Bel, one of the Babylonian gods, protects his life. Taking God right out of his name. Next one, Hananiah. It means Yahweh. That's the proper name of God. Yahweh is gracious. His name gets changed to Shadrach, which means Aku, another Babylonian god, commands. God is gracious. No, Aku commands. Mishael, which means who is what God is, gets changed to Meshach, who is like Aku, another Babylonian god. Azariah, which means Yahweh is my helper, gets changed to Abednego, which probably means helper of Nebo, another Babylonian god. See, they're just ripping God out of who they are, trying to change their identity, trying to change their names. Stop believing those things. Stop being those things. We're going to call you, and we're going to force you to be different. That's what Babylon does. That's what Babylon does. They try to get rid of our identity, and our society has tried everything to change identity so your top priority of your identity isn't that you follow Jesus, not that you're a Christian, but anything else. Make it your sports. Make it your career. Make it your gender. Make it your sexuality. All those things are our identity above a follower of Jesus. But we have to say our identity comes first with Jesus Christ. That we are God's people if we follow him. That must become our core and highest identity if we want to thrive in Babylon. Because the pressure is too much. And that's why we need to be different. In verse 8... It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So here is Daniel saying, I'm going to be different. You can take away my manhood. You can take away my name. You can force me to live in a country I don't want to live in. But you will not change who I am and I will be different even if it's the one little thing that I can hold on to. That's what Daniel's saying. Now, a lot of people think that he's trying to follow like Old Testament like eating laws, but there was no eating laws about drinking wine. So it's probably not that, which is interesting. Some people think that maybe this food and this wine was being offered to the false gods so they couldn't eat or drink them because of that reason, and that might be true. But what I see here is Daniel and his friends saying, if there's one thing that can make us different, we're going to do it. And meals three times a day that we are separated from everybody else, we've got to do it. We've got to stand out because we have no other way to stand out. We have to be different. And I think that's good for us because we have to be different the same way. Sure, there are things that, that can be obvious about the way we live, but sometimes we just have to hold on to one thing. If you've ever seen a movie with like POWs or people that have been captured by another nation, they always like hold on to something. It's like a, a symbol or a memento or or some clothes they wear, or a secret handshake they have, and they memorize it and they do it all the time so they can keep their identity when everyone is trying to pressure them to be the same and assimilate. They hold on to something, and we, as followers of God, like Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, have to do the same thing. We've got to hold on something so that we are different. We are different. Because it's only when we're different that we can make a difference. 
So Daniel made this request, and in verse 9, it says, Now God had caused, Natan, remember this word? God gave, he caused, he gave the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God is sovereignly working in this, and, and he gives favor to his people that even in the mind of an unbelieving Babylonian uh, chief, that he's like, okay, well, that might work. See, God is working in these things. He gives us favor in these situations that are super hard. So Daniel makes the request. This guy's like, okay, that sounds good, but he's worried. This chief official knows that if he lets these guys for three years only eat vegetables, because that's what the request is, only eat vegetables, they're going to be skinny. And they're going to look sickly, and the king's going to be mad. And not only will they be killed, but this chief official will lose his head, okay? If you think it's bad for you, you have a bad boss, nothing like Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He's afraid for his life. And he says, okay, Daniel's smart. He says, let's, let's just try it. Let's do an experiment. For 10 days, we'll only eat vegetables. And you compare us to how we look with the other guys who are eating all the king's gourmet food. We'll compare it and see how we look compared to them. This, this is just wisdom, okay, guys? If you're ever asking permission from your parents or your boss, just say, hey, can we try it? Okay, I'm serious. It really works. Let me just try it for a little while. Okay, we can do it. So they make this request. Can we try it for 10 days? The guy said, we can do it for 10 days. And after 10 days of only eating vegetables, they're looking good. <laughs> they're looking great. It says in verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And I highlighted the word better nourished because in Hebrew it means that they're fatter of flesh. I say this because there's this very popular book called The Daniel Plan. The Daniel Diet. You've heard of this? Only eat vegetables. This is not a diet, guys. They gained weight on this diet, okay? If you want to get fatter, don't do this, okay? It doesn't make sense to eat vegetables only for three years instead of meat and you're going to gain weight? This is not normal. This is not a diet strategy, okay? This is a miracle from God. God gives this tiny little miracle to bless them and show that he is with them through these three years. Eating vegetables and gaining weight. Eating vegetables and gaining weight. God does it. In fact, it makes it clear in verse 17. It says, to these four young men, God gave. Natan, that word again. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. That's going to be important in this book. God gave them success. He gave them learning. They were smarter and got even smarter. God is giving them success now. He's blessing them because of their faithfulness to be different. And in verse 19, when they get presented after these three years to Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 19 it says, The king talked with them. He interrogates and puts them through their test, their final test. And found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in verse 20 it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys are the valedictorians. Because God has blessed them. Because they were faithful to be different in Babylon. They were being faithful to be different in Babylon. You know what I love about this, this book? These guys are teenagers at this point. 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. They're teenagers. They're high schoolers. 
And this is so important. Students, I want to talk to you for a second. If you're a teenager, if you're a kid here, our world says, wait till you're older. You can rebel when you're young and sin when you're young. God's word says, be faithful now. Be faithful now. Stand out now. Even when there's pressure now, you stand up to do what's right. Because if you look at it, you're not rebelling by drinking alcohol and having sex. That's what everybody's doing. To rebel is to stand up and be a Christian and do what's right. And you don't have to wait till you're older. Wait till you get past college. Everybody in high school and college is doing their own thing. To be faithful to God starts when you're a teenager. It really does. Don't wait. Be different now. And that's what these guys do, and God blesses them for it. And now they are in the position to be the king's officials, guys. They are right next to the king, the most important person in the world, and most powerful person in the world in that day. And they have his ear. See, when we're faithful to God, he puts us in positions of influence. But if you're just like everybody else, you're not going to make a difference. To be different if you want to make a difference. That's what these guys did, and this is what we are called to do as well. Be different to make a difference. Um, It's really interesting in empires that, that you look at it. It's the people that are different than change things. It's the same thing today. Like Everybody's like, oh, you know, you want your kids socialized to be like everybody else. I don't. And it's not even just because I'm a Christian. We all know it's the weirdos who change the world. You look at Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. I don't care if you don't like them. They are weird, right? But it's weird people who change the world and do stuff. It's not normal people. Normal people do what everybody does. It's people who are different that change things. We're called to be different if we want to make a difference. And they do that. They're in this position of influence, and they can change it. What's really fascinating, I told you guys that in the first century, Christians, when they were first emerging, were in another Babylon. They called it Babylon. It was the Roman Empire. There was an emperor in charge who hated God, worshipped other gods, and their gender and sexuality rules were all sorts of crazy. If you study history, it's true. And Larry Hurtado, who's a historian, looked back and said, why is it that this tiny little group of Christians in 300 years, completely changed the Roman Empire so that it became the Christian Empire. How is that possible? Larry Hurtado studied it, this historian, and he found that Christians did five things to be different in those days. Early Christians. One, they practiced a different form of sexuality. In those days, sexuality was, was way off the charts. Just, just do a little bit of study. You can figure this out. People think that homosexuality is like this new invention. No, it's not. In the Roman Empire, it was completely endorsed. Very common among men. But Christians come along, and they wait till marriage between one man and one woman to have sex. This was crazy, and the Romans thought they were crazy. Different sexuality, that's number one. Number two, they had a different view of life. See, Romans, were it was very common if they did not want a child, especially a little girl, they would take their baby and leave the baby in the trash heap. And that was legal. It was okay. As long as the kid was under three, I think. But Christians would take those babies, take them home, adopt them, and raise them as their own. It was a radically different view of life than the Romans had. It's almost like today, where we Christians have a different view of when life begins. So two... They had a different view of life. The third thing that Christians did differently in the first century was that they had a different approach. Instead of fighting and having conflict to get their way, they would love and show kindness. What? That's unheard of. But it was through love that Christians influenced the world, not through war. 
That's the third thing, a different approach. The fourth thing is that they had a different view of socioeconomic status. Because in a Christian church in those days, if you were the poorest of a poor or the richest of the rich, you would come and worship together. It's almost like today in our church. You can be rich or you can be poor, and you can get in the same water of baptisms. I remember one Sunday we had like a CEO and a homeless person get baptized on the same Sunday. That's what the church is, right? We all come before God on an even playing field. And that is different than any other society in the world where more and more social stratification happens every day. That's the fourth thing that Christians did differently. And the fifth thing is that they had different cultures worshiping together. Christianity never has been a white religion or a black religion or any ethnicity religion. It is for all people. And that's how it was at the beginning, and that's how it is today. That's why there are white churches, there's African-American churches, there's Latino churches, there's a Filipino church down the street, there's a Burmese church, and then there's other churches like us. We all come together. We're a multicultural church. We're an every-nation congregation. That's how it has to be. And it's those differences that make us stand out in a world where everybody's fighting each other because of the color of their skin. So just like in the first century, Christians, because they were different, impacted the entire Roman Empire, the Babylon of their days. We are called to be different today. And when we're different, we can make a difference. We can make a difference in our society. Now, it is really hard for a lot of people to live today's day and age because they're like, this isn't the nation I grew up in. This isn't where I want to raise my kids in. I hear these conversations all the time. This isn't a Christian nation anymore. And, and it can be very cynical and depressing for a lot of people. But I'm telling you, the good news of Daniel is what comes in the very end of chapter one, guys. Look at this. This verse is so good. And I often skip it. I just skipped over it for so long. It says in verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know why that's important? Because Cyrus wasn't a Babylonian. I want to show you a timeline real quick. Daniel and his friends got captured in 605 B.C. They got transported to Babylon, and for three years they went into training. So in 602 B.C., their training was finished. The Babylonians conquered even more, and in 586 had completely wiped out Israel and Jerusalem. And as you can see, Daniel lived through all of that. And in addition to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, who will show up in this book of Daniel, there were four other Babylonian kings that Daniel lived through. But then Darius of Persia, a completely different empire, came in and wiped out the Babylonians. Daniel, if he was 14, 15 in 605 BC, means he would have been in his 80s when the Persian Empire came in and when he got thrown into the lion's den. And he lived through all of that. The Babylonians thought they were all that. We've conquered your God. We are in control of everything. We're the most powerful nation to ever rule. And guess what happened to the Babylonians? Gone. Still, Daniel was there. God's people remain when everything else fades away. Um, Lord Veith, Lord Reith, I'm sorry, Lord Reith. Um, was a guy who helped in, in England get the BBC started, the British Broadcast Company. And he was a Christian, so in the 1920s he got it started, but then into the 1960s, the UK was going secularized and becoming less and less of a Christian nation. And so um, at one of their board meetings, there was a young producer that stood up and said, we need to stop in the BBC showing religious and church news. Nobody cares about that stuff anymore. Our nation isn't Christian anymore. Lord Reith stood up. An old man now, 
six foot six, and he said, sit down, young man. And he told him that the church will be standing at the BBC's grave. And he's right. The BBC will go away. CNN will go away. Fox News will go away. And the church of God will remain. Facebook, Twitter, they're going to be gone. It'll be ancient history. (laughs) I don't care. Apple, Amazon, they will be completely forgotten. Even the United States of America will fade away and the church of God will remain. The gates of hell cannot conquer against us. God's people will stand forever. And we know that because Jesus came down from heaven in his own form of exile in the Roman Empire, the Babylon of his day. And though they hated him and put him to death because he was different, he rose from the dead three days later to show that anyone who has faith in God will live forever. And we will stand when all else fades away. We're told that from the beginning. It's hot. There's pressure. Pressure to conform. Pressure to give up your faith. Well, we must be different if we want to make a difference. Let's pray. Lord God, um, for those of us who want a nation that's more comfortable, that's better for Christians, Lord God, I pray that you'd give us faithfulness. That we would look to Daniel and realize, well, actually, we don't have it that bad. But we will learn from their example. And we will be faithful. And we will be different. We will cling to one thing, whatever it is, so that we can stand out and be different in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools. And we will be different because, God, we want to make a difference. We want to transform our families, our communities to be more like you. And Lord God, help us to be faithful no matter how hot, no matter how much pressure we face till the end, just like Daniel was. Amen. Now, if you're here, I want to tell you some good news because Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead for you so that if you believe in him, all your sins are forgiven and you can follow him and be different and know that you too will rise to a body that will live forever to reign with Jesus for all time. But you've got to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to give you the opportunity today to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So would everybody close your eyes, bow your heads, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to repeat this prayer after me. And if you're a Christian, say this prayer out loud to give courage to somebody who needs to pray it for the first time today. Please repeat after me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Save me. Forgive me. In faith, I declare, Jesus is Lord. Give me the gift of eternal life. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you and be different to make a difference. Now, with eyes closed, if you said that prayer for the first time and meant it, if Jesus, for the first time today, is your Lord and Savior, we want to celebrate with you. So put your hand into the air on the count of three. One, two, three. Put your hand into the air and let's celebrate. Praise God. Praise God for those decisions. Praise God. Lord God, we worship and we rejoice because we know that you are faithful. And because of that, we can be faithful too to the end. 
Lord God, help us to follow you and be different even when everyone else is pressuring us to conform to the world. We will not be conformed, but we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We have a few people that are about to go public with their faith to say, I'm different from the world. That's what they're doing today. And they're going to come up and get baptized. If you want to make that decision today, and today is the day you're ready to go public with your faith, head to the back. Pastor Sawyer's back there. We got shirts for you. We got clothes for you. We got towels for you. And we're going to sing a song Sam wrote. Uh, we, we did it in August earlier. This is an awesome song. We're going to worship together. And then you guys can